because I don't think any of our patients will change their training, their nutrition and their sleep all in day one. But if you kind of open the door and say like all of these things have a barrier or all of these things are factors and get them to acknowledge that, you've kind of opened the door to future conversations. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Clinical Athlete is a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who walk the walk and specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. Our first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust. And our second mission is to nurture the education and growth of those professionals through a community that strives to learn and get better. This podcast is one way that we fulfill those missions. To learn more about us and to get involved, join the free Calo Community Facebook group for great discussions, resources, events, and networking opportunities. Hit that link in the show notes. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a physical therapist, strength and conditioning coach, mediocre weightlifter, and founder of Clinical Athlete and Calu. This show is a recording of a Calu journal club that I led recently on a paper titled A Frame. <laughs> a framework for clinicians to improve the decision-making process in return to sport. I love me some frameworks and I love discussing the idea of creating a clinical process. And I know we all want to become more comfortable making return to sport decisions in the face of uncertainty. This journal club was a great discussion to help with all of that with an awesome group of Calu peeps. We hope you enjoy. This paper was really, I chose it and um, I chose it because I have a bias towards decision making and the process therein and um, the science of of decisions. And they, we talked about this, or they talked about that in the paper, decision theory and and different models of how we make decisions and how we uh, distill information into, you know, what comes out the other side. And, uh, so that was kind of my bias going into the paper. I, I enjoyed it and I thought it was a really interesting read. I'm going to kind of maybe just start with a couple points that I thought were interesting, not necessarily give a synopsis of the paper. If you haven't read it, no big deal. I'll actually here pull up a link so that you can follow along. All right. That should allow you to download. I put it in the chat to download the paper, but we struggle with this. I think anybody and not just clinicians, but anything in life, you know, making, making a decision based on all the information that we have, or a lot of times based on the information that we don't have information that we know that we don't have and information that would be important that we don't even know existed. And we don't even think about it, that, that affects like the outcome. And that was the first thing that, that jumped out at me is the papers differentiation between decision-making, quality decision-making and outcomes and how a quality decision does not always lead to a favorable outcome. And there's a term, I'm actually going to throw some books, a few books at you as we go here, but there's a term called resulting. It's like a, it's like a slang term that's been created in decision-making theory, but resulting is essentially grading a decision's worth based on the outcome. And so if it was a favorable outcome, oh, the result was good. Oh, the decision must have been the right one. Or the outcome was negative. Oh, it must have been bad decision-making or a bad decision-making process. And that term has been, uh, has been called resulting. And it's something that we want to try to avoid as this paper talked about, because there's so many different aspects of decision-making that are out of our control, um, information that we don't have, AKA bounded rationality is one of the, the terms that was talked about in the paper where we're just, we're looking through a keyhole, you know, we're limited in the scope that we know. Um, and one of the books that I wanted to throw out there is it's this, it's called thinking and uh, it's probably backwards. I'll put it in the chat. It's called thinking in bets by Annie Duke. And um, she was actually a world famous poker player, but thinking in bets, making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts which is kind of like the life that we lead as clinicians. I'll put that in the chat, but she starts the book talking about resulting. And the example that she gave was 
if you're not an American football fan, it's fine. But uh, in the Super Bowl with the Patriots and the Seahawks, when they could have ran the ball at the one yard line, gave it to Marshawn Lynch and just plowed into the end zone, but they chose to throw because the analytics says if you throw, the worst case scenario is that it's going to be incomplete and then you can run the ball on third down. But actually the worst case scenario was the ball gets intercepted at the game over. And that's exactly what happened. And the, the chances of that happening were so low that the, cho- the, the coach chose the analytics. He chose the problem. He, he went on to the side of probabilities, but he happened to lose. And then he got crushed because people were resulting on that. They said, why didn't you just hand the ball off? Um, and so that was, that was an example in, in, in the book. Uh, but we could think about that. I mean, how many times do we think we make all the right decisions in clinical practice? We do everything we can and the person still has a re-injury or they just don't get to the level that they wanted or something bad happens. And we think, oh, I must have not made the right decision. And because we can't live in this parallel universe where we make one decision in this universe and then we're able to test another decision in the parallel universe so we can see which one was better, we're always thinking in hindsight and we can get caught in that trap of resulting, you know, with ourselves a lot of times. So I, I liked that the paper um, led with that. Does anybody have any, any thoughts on that concept or, or can, is it something that you can relate to or something that you struggle with yourself, either as a student or a clinician or a coach or, you know, whatever. Sure. I was just going to say that I think that uh, it's, easy to be guilty of resulting, especially like you said, in the clinical setting, re-injury happens and we sort of tend to blame ourselves. And I almost wonder if their second step of taking a look at decision-making theories and kind of like you said, being a little more proactive as opposed to reactive and relying on hindsight, if we're a little more comfortable and confident in ourselves, if we do that prior to that way, once the outcome happens, we're already confident in what we've done, regardless of the outcome. And I think that's something I took away from this and something I'll be better about. Yeah. And, and it's not to say that, Oh, you don't worry about like whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And we have no power over it. And it's not saying that at all. And that's, a, I'm really glad that you brought that up because it is still a, the outcome is still information. It's still, okay, this happened. What did I, what did we do though? And a lot of times when the outcome happens, we don't have a framework or a process to be able to backtrack and say, all right, well, we did this, this, and this, and this, and that happened. And, you know, we look back and say, well, I did a bunch of random shit and couldn't keep track of everything. And it's on to the next. And so you really have no way to audit yourself and to um, make your process more robust or clean up any leaks in the pipeline that may have gave you a better chance at an outcome. Cause we still want to increase the probability of a favorable outcome. So, yeah, that's a really, really great point is you, you still want to consider trying to make, not only trying, wanting to make the best decision, decision possible, but having um, some type of, of process to be able to do that so that you can look back and kind of plug and play, you know, and, and this is kind of a framework. The framework that I talked about in the Cali Plus mentorship calls is really it's a, it's a skeleton that you can apply to most cases where it's, you can just kind of plug in the relevant bits with each presentation, but you can create your own personal clinical process and framework like that. And it allows you to basically speak the same language to yourself, you know, and, and audit your process and hopefully maximize your, your chances of a good outcome. Um, so that was, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Anybody else thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is a, a, pretty solid point to make. Just, I know that earlier on in my clinical rotations, I just graduated recently. So I I haven't had an opportunity to like be in consistent clinical practice, but I struggled pretty hard earlier on in my clinical rotations when I got, you know, some kind of negative outcome after a visit and just like being super hard on myself. But that also came into a lot of the messaging and like my body language and my Mm. like visible reaction with my patients um, about like whether or not like, Oh, my knee pain flared up after I introduced plyos. Was it too soon? Was it too intense? It's like, are pogos too intense? I don't know. You know, it's like, I found myself worrying whether or not like they would continue to trust me 
where I think a better understanding of what the paper is talking about here and what you're talking about with resulting and stuff, um, separating the outcome from the decision would help me, would have helped me, especially then be more confident and, and maintain a stronger trust between my patients and myself. Do you also think too, Ethan, thanks for sharing that by the way. And do you also think that it would be stuff like this can be helpful and also how you educate and maybe set expectations in the beginning? You could, you don't have to use the word resulting, but maybe it's a conversation that you're kind of having with the person. What do you think about that? Yeah, totally. As far as like being transparent about like the almost kind of like in, informed experimental process that, you know, progressions that we're making are with patients, uh, you know, I can have previous experience and, and be able to make appropriate progressions as, as, you know, with the decision, decision-making processes that I have uh, that I hope are, you know, effective. Uh, but, you know, with every patient being different, uh, and how they're going to react for sure, being transparent about like, Hey, you know, you know, that started coming in later on as I caught on being like, Hey, you might be sore. You might have a little bit of pain, but like, we'll adjust as we go. Um, that was really helpful as I kind of caught on to that. And that's basically the informed consent process. You know, they talked about that in the paper as well, where I, that term, I never really took it seriously. Like I, in my mind as a student and a new grad, informed consent was just a piece of paper that people signed. Sometimes they signed it before the appointment, which doesn't make any sense because they don't get, they don't have any information. They're informed. It was just part of like the intake packet. Just get it out of the way, sign the informed consent. But the informed consent is, is uh, such a powerful process. It's like you just kind of outlined, Ethan, it's um, talking about the options and, and talking about, the pros and cons of each and taking into consideration their preferences and also any, any important timelines that are coming up and then just having a dialogue. And, and it's something that evolves, you know, informed consent's not just on day one either. It's, it's kind of baked into the entire uh, process. Yeah. Azita in the, in the chat, she says, uh, educating on our framework and plan setting realistic expectations collaboratively, um, has been a game changer. And, uh, she said that she's seen athletes become much more, much less likely to engage in resulting if we've gone through this in a thorough and collaborative manner. And yeah. So if, if your patients, if we, if you've talked about some of the uncertainty and the chances of, of setback and, and, um, kind of what to expect, then they're not surprised when those things inevitably happen. And, where I've lost confidence that Ethan, to your point, a lot of times in the past is where I didn't have those conversations and hitting a roadblock caught the patient by surprise. It didn't catch me by surprise because to me, I'm like, oh yeah, setbacks happen. But I never actually relayed that to the person. I just, just kind of assumed that people expect that, but you shouldn't, you know, if somebody's not cognizant of these things or, or kind of aware of, of the nature of these things and, so when it, now, you know, if I, if we do a better job of that, when those things happen, it's still frustrating, but we can go back to the conversation that we had and use that as an anchor point to, to try to find a common ground again, which is super powerful for maintaining trust and in therapeutic alliance and also being able to keep them checked in and continue to, you know, move forward positively. Anybody? Yeah, go ahead. Can I just touch on that as well? Please. Um, I work with a lot of uh, post-op ACLs, a lot of high school kids that are going back to sport. Hmm. And that's something that I really try and reiterate day one post-op is like, you know, here's your timeline and it's general and it's going to change. And it's important that not everybody is going to be on the same timeline because so many of my kids come in and say, well, my friend who's doing PT here is at this stage. And my friend who's doing PT here, who tore their ACL a week before me is doing this. And I just try and tell them that like, we are on our timeline and there's going to be different markers along the way for how we're going to progress. And, you know, PT is never linear. That's what I try and tell them a lot of the time too. And, um, just to kind of give them encouragement as well of like general timelines of like when they can expect to be to this point or that, but always let them know that there's fluctuations in everything. Mm. Lauren, thanks for sharing that. Do you, do you ever find that? Cause I think, I think the ACL scenario lends itself 
to timelines as well as anything because we have so much just kind of data on it and, and generally decent ideas of where somebody should be on average as they go through. Do you have scenarios where even when you talk to the person about the uncertainty and, and things can fluctuate that, you know, they hit that nine month mark or they hit that whatever mark and they are fixated on that number and you kind of have to get that out of them a little bit. And yes. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and a lot of times their surgeons will give them really specific mm. timelines and I try and uh, discourage that right away and say, Hey, I know this is what your surgeon said, but you know, I'm looking at you in the long run, right? You might be a freshman or sophomore. I want you to play these next few years. I also talk to them like, what are our goals? Are we playing in college? Or, you know, I like to get a really thorough idea of what their end game is too. And um, kind of the importance of that so that that can kind of get them on my side of like, listen, you know, if we can get back to this season, fine. But like, what if we wait till next season and then you're even better? Or, you know, some scenario in between. You kind of, I've also learned you do have to kind of work with the kids because if there is a scholarship on the line or something, oh, yeah. you know, that adds pressure to it as well. That would change for it. And parents. Yeah. Oh, somewhere in the mix. Oh yeah. They're, they're, they're the most challenging, I think more so than the kids. <laughs> you got to get everybody on board. And, and think about the poor kid, you know, high, high school kids aren't, they're great but they're not like the most deep critical thinkers. A lot of them are. And so they've got, but they've got like their parents are pulling them in directions. And then the surgeon is saying one thing and potentially you're saying, you know, well, you know, let's put, and they're just kind of like in the middle, like I just, I just want to play or maybe that I don't even want to play. Yeah. And there's so many, yeah, there's so many factors. But yeah, I just try and be as upfront as possible from the beginning of, you know, it's going to be a while. We're going to be in this for, I say, give or take a year, depending on how things go. And, you know, there's going to be ups and downs, but we'll get through them and kind of try and lay it out that way. I'd rather give a longer timeline than a shorter one. Well, yeah. Out here in California, you've got some of the surgeons giving them that six month timeline. Yeah. Which really all that happens at six months is that the surgeon discharges them. Exactly but that, you know, cleared. Right. So in the, in the kid's mind, it's all clear. Um, thanks for sharing that. Let's see. Rosalie in the chat says the specific timeline looming is also why that collaboration on the return to sport decision-making with the patient, especially the younger ones is so important. So they know the actual things they need to be able to complete and working on it throughout the entirety of therapy. So they know where they're at. And uh, like you said, it's not a surprise at the nine month mark where they, if they're not where they need to be. Yeah. It's a really great point. Um, and like to Lauren's point too, still considering time, especially if time is, is a factor, high school, college athletes, time is always a factor. If not, if for nothing else, the, their high school and college careers are finite scholarship aside, going pro aside, they're not going to be playing forever. In, in those particular environments. So what, you know, what's important to them. Um, and as they get a little older, especially into the college years, they tend to be a little bit more autonomous with some of those decisions. And, and, you know, you can maybe even be more, even more collaborative with them. Um, and the high school kids, maybe you've got, depending on their age, you've got the parents also in the fold. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that to hear your all's perspectives, in conjunction with the points of the paper. Is anybody, has anybody used the start framework? I think it's super useful. So I, it's, it's pretty broad. Um, and like they said in the paper, it's the start framework is not going to tell you what to do. Um, it's more of like big rocks, kind of big picture things. And then you kind of within that, uh, based on your setting and, and your limitations with whatever, wherever you are, then you kind of plug and play whatever you can do. But um, if you're not familiar with the start framework, you know, pull some of those papers. A lot of the work on that framework is open access, free 
free research. You can just Google start framework and get an idea of, of it. It helps to organize your thoughts around some of this stuff when you have some of these models to, to go off of. What was uh, everybody, anybody's thoughts on the, let me make sure I don't mess up the terms here, but given the example of the ACL return to play battery of tests, the rule-based theory versus the expected utility theory or um, like weighting different things. Do you all do that? Maybe not like mathematically and you've got like a weighted model like they show in the paper, but even just in your mind, are you weighting certain elements could be testing or certain uh, certain elements of, of the clinical process that kind of hit a little harder in your return to play decision than, than other aspects. Is that something you do even if it's almost subconscious? Yeah. And he says, I think the battery of tests needs to be better in that specific example. I'm not sure how, but I don't think just the hop tests are enough. And so, yeah, that's, and, and Andy, that could be part of your framework. Um, I think they just pulled like it was table two. I think they just pulled from a specific paper to just give an example. Like here's an example of a test battery. And then they wanted to compare the rule-based decision theory with expected utility. But, but yeah, so if, you know, if you've got, if you're looking at the literature and part of your return to sport framework is going to be a battery of tests and you look at what's in the literature, maybe this paper that they pulled from and you say, well, there's not really, you know, the hop test can be, uh, they can be gamed. They can learn how to pass the hop test without actually using the knee or you start seeing certain things like that. Then you start looking at, well, the hop tests aren't actually testing the, what I want to be tested. So I need to go elsewhere and look at that. And that's part, and that can be part of your process. And then you, uh, you pull and plug and, and where you see fit. Max says it's the quads until it's not the quads. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, as we're looking, you might rate quadricep strength. They, you know, they gave like a zero to five importance numerical weight. So you might rate quad strength as a five as they did. And um, some of these other things, like maybe you rate all the hop tests as a three and you've got some other test like a, a drop jump or, you know, something else like a um, 505 test looking at deceleration that you weight as a four or a five. <clears throat> but I thought that was interesting that the actual, not just kind of the mental model of, oh, I think this test is like the blow hanging fruit. We got to hit this before anything else matters, but actually quantifying it into a model like that was interesting to see. Is anybody lucky enough to get baseline testing with their teams or athletes? And if so, um, how beneficial has that been? Uh, I would say it's been extremely beneficial because I've been in a number of different settings, some settings where I didn't have access to it and some where I did. And now I can really see the difference because you have that baseline that you want to compare to. You have a goal to get back to, if not get better than. Um, so yeah, it's been, a, it's been a big game changer because we want to have those objective measures. We all know some of the issues that come along with possibly just comparing to the other limb, which they talked about as well. I think even though we try to combat the detraining on both sides, it's going to happen on the other side, um, according to research. And I think just probably even clinical experience tells us that. So yeah, having those pre-injury uh, baseline numbers is great to see, but also I've noticed it's, it's nice to kind of be able to track that over time because now when we see those dips in numbers, that kind of raises some flags like, okay, something's going on here. So yeah, I would say it's good to have from a perspective approach, but then also retrospective when need be um, in rehab, having those numbers has been extremely helpful and guides the process much better in my opinion than comparing to the other limb. How often do you test for baseline tests? Um, so kind of have two different category of tests and this is medical in conjunction with the performance team. So it's a large battery of tests. Some are performed on a monthly basis and some are 
only performed at let's say spring training and one time in the fall as well. Um, so that's a good example of kind of weighting the importance of tests because there was a process where we decided what tests do we need to look at on a monthly basis? What are measures that need to be monitored on a monthly basis compared to, okay, this one, maybe we just get once or twice a year. Yeah. And it has that evolved like, um, the tests that you use, the frequency that you use them, the time of the year, does that, do you all, you know, get together and kind of talk about like changing that over time as you see what works and what doesn't? It's scary to think some people might answer no to this, but yes, I would say our team and um, the one I'm part of currently sits down on a very regular basis to kind of self-analyze and take a look at ourselves of what are we measuring? Is there anywhere we're missing the boat? Are we up to date on research? And then I think one big thing I've learned is research might say one thing, but it could apply differently to your team. Every team is different. So some players might just not enjoy doing a certain test. So you find a different solution. Um, but yeah, I would say that process is ever evolving based on evidence and what you find works in your specific setting. That's the biggest thing is finding what works with your team. And what you have access to. <laughs> yeah, that too. You know. That too. Anybody else have thoughts on that? Cassidy added, throwing in some psychological readiness to the uh, battery of tests. Yeah, for sure. Um, I have a question for the group. Um, I'm curious, for those of you who don't have a leg extension machine, um, how you go about measuring quad strength um, and limb symmetry index. And also um, something the paper touched on was how the uninvolved side also tends to often get detrained over the course of the nine to 12 months, let's say for ACL. Um, so how are you all going about addressing the uh, uninvolved side strength as well? Um, well, I'll throw a couple thoughts as far as the, um, not having a knee extension, I would say, uh, well, there's, there's been, there's been a couple papers on that, looking at different ways, different ways to load the knee and how they compare, like finding the quad symmetry on somebody using uh, isokinetic dynamometer and then other ways of testing what they think would be quad strength and then kind of comparing, is it, are the differences the same as the gold standard dynamometer testing and um, things like, you know, one single leg leg extension or a single leg leg press. Like if you don't have a leg extension, you might not have a leg press, but the, the idea being you try to, find an exercise variation that can be repeatable. I think that's the, that's the big principle, no matter what exercise you choose it, if you're using it as a test, it needs to be repeatable. And then you try to set up the position so that it's biasing as much as the quad, as much of the quad as possible. And one thing that you can do that doesn't require anything but a wall is, um, it's called a wall slide squat. And you can look at Eric uh, Maida from the science PT does a lot of work with this. Scott Morrison has, has done a video or two on this, but essentially your heels are up on the wall. And so you're kind of on your forefoot and your back is against the wall. And so the wall is blocking you from using a hip strategy. And you, all you can do is slide down. And as you slide down, your knee travels forward, 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 increasing the moment arm and thus the requirement of the quad. Um, and you can do that double leg, you can do a single leg. And what you can measure is you could mark how far down they get on the wall. You could take a goni and measure the uh, knee angle. And it, it's nice. It's super repeatable because again, you don't need any equipment and, and the wall really constrains a lot of the degrees of freedom of the movement. So that's an option that you could use, but uh, and then your, to your second question, I'll pause on that because I, I want to know if anybody else has thoughts on alternative testing when you don't have either a knee extension machine or some type of dynamometer to test with. Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Here's your brain break from this awesome discussion about return to sport decision-making and creating your decision-making framework. Remember, if you're brand new to Calu and want to get more involved in all the things we do, join the free Calu community Facebook group for great discussions and resources and lots of learning and networking opportunities. That's Calu, C-A-L-U. 
L-U community on Facebook, or you can just hit the link in the show notes. Also, if you're one of our six listeners who enjoys this podcast, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get the info out to as many people as possible. And now back to the show. I'll follow up with a question too. <laughs> to you, Quinn. Um, so when you're with that wall slide test, which I've, I've seen before in one of Eric's presentations. So are you looking at the moment arm of the involved versus the uninvolved, like, like how far they can go down? Or are you controlling the moment arm distance and seeing time to failure or something else that I'm not thinking of? Well, so, and now we're talking torque versus force. So which is a good, it's a good distinction. If you want to um, try to get a relative measure of torque to body weight strength. So you could just measure range of motion of the knee side to side. And that could be your measure of symmetry is they do the wall side on one leg. How far down are they able to get measuring just knee flexion angle? And that angle compared to the other side could be your symmetry index, just that alone. But that doesn't, that's not going to give you any type of, of measure to relative to their body weight. So in order to do that, you do have to measure the moment arm, which if they can get, so their foot's on the ground, their forefoot, that's where the force is going straight up into the ground or straight up into their system from the ground because gravity is going straight down. The moment arm then is basically that imaginary line. I actually take a PVC pipe and literally put it next to their foot that's on the ground. And the, so the PVC pipe is now just sticking straight up. As they're sliding down the wall, their knee starts to travel more forward and forward and forward because it's a very knee heavy squat. So your moment arm is the distance between their knee axis and the PVC pipe or that imaginary line. If that distance gets to a foot, because math and physics, this is just a very easy thing to remember. If they can go down the wall and they can get to a foot from that imaginary line to the axis of rotation of their knee on one leg, that's equivalent to them being able to put their, uh, their body weight in, in torque into that limb. And that's kind of a metric that's kind of a, a, a threshold that's been cited in the literature. It's in, it's in foot pounds because it's a, you can just measure one foot and it's in pounds because it's their whole body weight. But that's, that's the moment arm. So you can measure torque that way by just taking their body weight times the distance that their knee gets away from that imaginary line. I know that was a lot. And I'm doing a lot of this, which probably confuses you, but does no, that make- No, no, the, okay. the hand gestures were really helpful. I'm very <laughs> visual. No, thank you. That was perfect. Okay. okay. And then the second thing I'll add is that equipment limitations are becoming less and less of a problem because even if you don't have a knee extension, I just shot this in the chat. I have no, I have one of these pieces of equipment, but I have no financial uh, gain or nothing from that. Actually, I think Scott Morrison has a code. He doesn't get, he specifically says, I don't want commission. I just want to give people a discount. So actually maybe hit up Scott, but I just put in the chat, this little piece of equipment, it's called a Tindec processor. It's just a pull dynamometer and it's 150 bucks. If you can talk your clinic into getting that it's hundred percent, totally worth it. And you can set somebody up just on a bench or a box, hook a chain up to the Tindec and hook it up, you know, behind them in a rack or something that doesn't move and just have them kick into it as hard as they can. It's got a really awesome app too. It's like real time Bluetooth app. So it gives you that visual feedback. You can see the force curve and the threshold and you can use it for training too. So you can test a max out session of isometric strength. And then you could have them do like a training protocol of like 80% holds. You can set the, the app to to have a little line there and they can see their force reading hit the line and they have to try to maintain it, you know, for whatever amount of time that you decide. So it's just a really great piece of equipment and it's, and it's dirt cheap compared to some of the other things that are out on the market. Um, your second question was, 
I forgot. <laughs> about, um, there's a tendency for the uninvolved leg to also become detrained oh, yeah. through the rehab process. Um, like just curious how other people have addressed this component. Thoughts on that? Anyone or even on the prior question too? you guys, I have a stupid answer, but I just trained the hell out of it, honestly, because I think especially, I mean, whether it's a high level athlete or recreational athlete, most people are bothered by the fact that they're no longer able to do what they love or use whatever limit is um, to its fullest extent. So I like to take advantage of that and kind of explain to them, one, the benefits of contralateral training, but two, just, hey, we're still going to be active. So, you know, you're in a, you're in a brace for 12 weeks. Awesome. Guess what? The left arm can still single arm dumbbell bench. It can still press. It can still pull. Um, and that stops them from sitting in their house all day and thinking about the fact that they can't play their sport for a year. Um, so really, I mean, as soon as it's safe, as soon as they're ready for it, I like to start them training on, if it's upper body, start on the other arm, start on the lower body, start on the core, the way I see it, we're there to treat them as a whole. So there's still plenty of work that can be done. And I think one big piece for me, there is um, just coordinating with whoever needs to be coordinated with. So if it's an athlete from a school, get in touch with their strength coach, you know, like, are they still going to be participating in the strength and conditioning program? Um, if not, then if you have the time and resources, step in and try to help them create a plan for the contralateral limb and lower body or whatever it might be. But if the strength coach or whoever it may be is taking care of that, then awesome. That's off your plate. But now you know that it's happening and they're still maintaining some level of baseline conditioning and strength on the other side. Um, so yeah, just train it early and often and give them something to do and maintain their level of athleticism. And test, you can test the uh, contralateral limb as soon as possible to try to limit the deconditioning. You know, the more time that goes by, if they're not doing anything, the more de deconditioned it'll get. So you try to test it as soon as, as soon as you can, that contralateral side, so you can get pseudo baseline on that side. Um, Jonathan had a really good point. I'm glad you brought this up, Jonathan. He says that a crane scale is similarly cheap and similar setup. Some faculty at Pitt are comparing that to a biodex. Uh, that's interesting. I've got a, a few thoughts on that. One is just be careful. So actually having research to back it up may help this particular problem, but just be careful with liability with something that you get on Amazon. That's not a medical device and um, is not calibrated as such. If anything happens, you know, what we're using on this person. Oh, it was a $50 crane scale off Amazon. And we say, what? One of those scales that you measure fish weight with. So just like that's that aside, but um, a crane scale is, is just one of these hang weights, hang scales that you would hang a big fish off of or anything that just is a pull. It's also a pull dynamometer. Um, I will say this. I used crane scales for about two years and I went through four or five of them because they're just, you get kind of get what you pay for from a quality standpoint. The, the casing is cheap. Um, the hooks are cheap. Uh, people, you know, they put them away or they, they just break easy. And the amount of money that I spent on crane scales, I could have got two Tindex and the Tindex will not, not break because it's one unit. There's no like hook. There's just, there's just holes on either side and it comes with that awesome app too. So um, that's just kind of my two cents. And that's my experience with it. I think the, I think the Tindex is a, just a better value long-term, but a crane scale will probably, you know, half the price at least, and you can get it off Amazon. Um, there's just, there's not going to be an app. And sometimes it gets wonky with the hold function too. Like somebody's kicking out and the crane scale, because it's designed for something hanging, which is a pretty steady fixed weight. So it takes like a couple seconds of a steady load for the crane scale to capture that peak and basically just hold it on the screen. But if somebody's kicking into a crane scale, they're kind of like shaking and the rating might not be steady enough for the crane scale to lock in that peak. And so you're like looking at it and I've had to like record the crane scale screen on my phone and then go back and like pause the video to where it was, it said, you know, the highest number on the crane scale. So it just comes with some added um, things that you don't think about until you actually start using it. But I love that there's, they're looking at that. So thanks for sharing, Jonathan. Uh, good question. 
Does nutrition, sleep, recovery factor into any of your return to sport conversations? If you prioritize sleep, reduce alcohol intake, they, they talked about that in the paper too. Um, get XYZ nutrition, you'll have a fast recovery time. And is there data to support this or is this considered a scope of, of PT? Um, yeah, I would love to hear people's thoughts on this. If it's part of your conversations or if you work within a team setting, how that works exactly. Hey, um, I'd like to jump in real quick. Um, Please. Um, oh, the, Jonathan just answered the pit question. That's great. Um, pop check. I love pop check. Anyways. Uh, so I, you know, you got to watch scope of practice, right? And you can make general suggestions and say, here's, you know, some people I want you to talk to about certain things, but I talk about sleep with all of my patients, especially my athletes, especially the high school ones. Um, who are having to wake up early for class, which we know is not good for that age group anyways. And they're having to, you know, they're burning the midnight oil because they're staying up late doing the homework. And they have more time because maybe they're not playing their sport, but maybe they're still going to practices or their games and stuff to support their team. So sleep is a real challenge, even for my adult patients. I'm in the DC area, like DMV area. Um, everyone's time poor, no one sleeps. Everyone's super anxious. You know, um, everyone's type A, everyone has the most important job. <laughs> So we have to little have a little conversation of when you're in my clinic, I'm the captain, not you, which is just super fun with the personalities down here. Um, but I talk about sleep with everybody because if you're not sleeping, none of the rest of this stuff matters as much. If we can't get that stage four REM cycle sleep, and I feel that that is within our scope of practice. Now, if you think they need a sleep study or something, that's a different story. But the other stuff I tend to say, you know, talk to your physician and I'm working to try to build some referrals with like youth sports psychologists, RDs, nutritionists, things like that. Um, Cause I, that does start to move out of our scope of practice, but we can talk in, in general terms about like macros and, and stuff. We take nutrition, like, um, so that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. I mean, if you look in the, uh, I, I'm in California and if you look at the California practice act in that, whatever 90 page document, there's one paragraph about nutrition. And it basically says, Annie, like what you said, it's like, just don't be an idiot, but use your, use your expert, use your expertise as to what you think that is in terms of nutrition. If, if you're using nutrition to try to uh, manipulate some type of systemic ailment, you're probably crossing the line a little bit, but if you're just talking about very general uh, guidelines, like you said, Annie, that's, that's probably within our knowledge and scope, but it's just, it's kind of up to you to figure out where that line is. Um, but I, it's obviously, you know, if they're not eating and they're not sleeping, it's a, it's uphill battle. They're still going to try. Does anybody have sports psych or, or RDs or any of that in their, in their circle that you refer to? Sorry, Adrian, I just saw your comments about my, uh, my sponsorship with Tindek. I have a, I have RDs and, and uh, sports psych people that I'll refer to if it's a conversation that we had and they, it's something that, you know, it's that collaborative conversation. Um, Cause otherwise, like Annie said, you know, like sleep and nutrition are so important, but it's not like people don't know that inherently. Like I'd be hard pressed if I asked any of my patients, Hey, do you think, not getting sleep is good for you. Like, I don't think a lot of them would say, yeah, I thought that no sleep and not eating or just eating like sugar candy Twinkies is good for me. And then not training. They're probably not going to say that. So it's more of getting past the, these things are good for you and more about, well, where's the roadblocks? Like what are the barriers? Where are the, what are the friction points? And then let's tackle those things. And now we're getting into like, lifestyle and behavior change and, and things that just, you know, you may find that at surface level, you can kind of manage it yourself, but then you might also find that as you dig into some more of this stuff, there's some underlying issues here, you know, maybe with nutrition and, and some, some things that they got going on under the hood that is a little deeper, you know? And, and, and so then you might start thinking about your referrals from that standpoint, but I think like any set of surface level conversation at minimum, just to one, get an idea of where they're at with those things. And also to kind of like 
planted as a thing that we can talk about now. Cause I don't think any of our patients will change their training, their nutrition and their sleep all in day one. But if you kind of open the door and say like all of these things have a barrier or all of these things are factors and get them to acknowledge that you've kind of opened the door to future conversations that you can, can kind of nudge a little bit. Yeah. I'll just second all of that. I feel like I try and have a lot of those conversations as well um, with my athletes. And we do have one or two uh, sports psychologists that we refer it's mostly with our adolescent athletes um that i feel like we've sent to uh some sports psychiatrists we have some kids who've just been like out for so long or they've had more complex surgeries and so if they've missed like a whole season or something i feel like it's more helpful for them on the side of like return to sport and like their confidence with it which is also something that's important that I think somebody mentioned in like the psychological testing on top of just like the battery of tests that we can take them through. And I think that's a huge component as well. Um, again, because I, the clinic where I work, we're fortunate that we, um, we do refer a lot of our high school athletes to a specific place where they'll do like a battery of return to sport testing and they'll do it at different periods along the way. But sometimes with that, the kids get so obsessed with like their score on the test versus like how their actual recovery is going. Um, And so then I have to like talk to them about like, well, look, we're in the clinic all the time. Like I know how things are going overall. And like you're just kind of getting test anxiety, even though it's like a a physical test. Um, So I think that psychological component is also really important. Do you, um, when you add sports site, cause now there's a, there was an aspect of the paper that I wanted to touch on and you, you're kind of getting at it here, which is stakeholders and they didn't really define what a stakeholder was, but, but where I define it and have seen it defined otherwise, it was really just anybody who is involved in this person's process. If they've invested their knowledge or expertise or anything into that process, they are a stakeholder. And that's just kind of a general term, but you know, when you introduce sports psych, you've now introduced another stakeholder. And so is, is there a challenge, Lauren, when you introduce another person into the fold to now we have to open that dialogue and how open is that dialogue between clinician, PT clinician and sports site clinician? Is that, are you all having conversations about the athlete? Do Are there silos? How does that work? Yeah, that's so hard. And that's such a good question. I feel like we I don't refer them often. It's like a very specific case by case scenario. I wouldn't say it's like in the mix all the time, because I think that is the biggest issue with the demographic that I see is that there are a lot of stakeholders, right? There's physicians that have their really specific opinions, parents, myself, their coaches, and then also Chris Powers, whoever you're sending them to for the return to sport testing, who are very opinionated people. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So that's who we have do our sport testing. Um, so yeah, adding another person, you definitely have to take into consideration for sure. And anytime I'm adding somebody into the mix or somebody's in the mix, I'm always communicating with them. Um, and I think that that is really important, but I, I do see what you're saying. Like, I feel like more times than not, there's too many cooks in the kitchen rather than, you know, not having enough resources in, in some of these scenarios. And that is a tough uh, place to navigate. So I don't know if I have an answer for that, but. No, that, that's the answer. I was just curious with the dynamic. Yeah. So yeah, um, there's no answers to any of this. We're just kind of describing our own experiences. So this is so helpful. Zita, you probably have a lot of experience too with different, I want to say silos, but, but different aspects of the person's care that you're talking to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think the biggest thing, um, just since you brought up is like communicating to the athlete that I am, or that we all are in communication, because I think that establishes a sense of, Oh, wow. They actually care about me. They're talking about me. So not only speaking to those other silos, but making it known to the athlete that this, collaborative care is happening for them. Yeah. Cause then on the flip side, when we don't, and then they get conflicting 
information from one or the other. And who knows if they'll even voice that we may not even know. Cause we're not, if we don't talk to the other person that the other, the other party, you know, said this and now the athlete's confused, but we don't know they're confused. <laughs> we think everything's fine. So yeah. Um, and then the other aspect of the paper that it mentioned, which I really love because this is one thing that I think is so important is defining success. And for me, I'm the setting that I've been in for a while now is less uh, it's less post-op and it's more like if I see somebody after ACL reconstruction, it's, it's usually like six months or longer after when they're kind of ready to do stuff. Um, but a lot of what I see is tendinopathies or just things that are chronic and longstanding and things that are probably not going to be gone when we're done. And, and they're hopefully the goal is that they're just better managed and the person feels much more confident in doing so and has more tools in their, in their uh, box to, uh, to pull out when they need to. And then if there's other stakeholders involved, educating that on the, them on the same process of how to manage these things. But that is a much different, different definition of done than, Oh, this thing is no longer here and I'll never experience it again. Um, and so I like that they mentioned that because I think that sometimes people have these pre preconceived notions of prognosis and um, sometimes they're realistic and sometimes they might not, not be. And you kind of have to try to recalibrate that, you know, over time. So I thought that was just a really good aspect. I don't know if I have any thoughts or questions, but I thought it was an important aspect of the paper that they touched on there. And with post-op, you know, defining done, maybe somebody doesn't, you almost, sometimes I assume that somebody wants to get back to like high performance and that's not always the case either. Sometimes they just want to be able to do like this activity or that activity. I actually don't want to get back to, to that. And that changes things a little bit. You know, maybe it changes timelines or maybe it changes exercise selection long-term or your return to sport battery. You don't need to have as many things looking at as many different things or just stuff like that. So two aspects there, defining your stakeholders and, and defining success, I think are anchors that you kind of open up right away and, and try to nail down. And then you're always revisiting along the process with the person. <clears throat> I think something else too, on defining success, especially in my post-op patients is, a lot of times they'll be like, oh, they're comparing it to how their knee felt pre-injury and pre-surgery. And I try and remind them like, well, you did have a surgery. You had this major intervention. Like your knee may never feel the same as it did before your surgery, but that doesn't mean that you haven't gotten stronger or that PT hasn't been successful and that you aren't meeting the goals that you need to return to whatever level of activity you want. Um, I just find that something interesting is that they're always trying to compare it to something they may never be able to feel again, or they may never be able to achieve. Yeah. And, and the paper mentioned in ACL land, a lot of the, um, like feeling like psychologically, like you're ready quad strength, you know, they're still finding deficits two years out long after you're discharged, you know, from, from PT or, uh, these things. So, yeah, I think that's a really important point is, is, um, what to expect, where to that, you know, not feeling like a hundred, not feeling like this never happened doesn't mean that it was a failure. And then the other book that I wanted to recommend is it's called risk savvy, how to make good decisions. And the author is Gerd Gigerenzer, who was actually referenced in the paper. If you remember that last name, you probably glance over it because it's weird, but Gerd Gigerenzer has done like 30 years of research on heuristics, on bounded rationality. So making decisions when we don't have all the facts, AKA literally every single time life. And so this is one of his books, but he's got a lot of books and he's got tons of research, but this book really um, summarizes a lot of the stuff. What I th So I think it would be a really nice read. It's not a deep, hard read, both, neither one of those books, really the thinking of bets, any Duke just came out with a new one too, but these two would be a great start. 
I'll put that in the um, chat as well. But they mentioned heuristics in the paper as these kind of fast and frugal shortcuts. And because they're shortcuts, they can also be biases. And so you kind of have to be careful that you're not going too far the other direction and ignoring information. But in this book, because he basically researches this stuff, he does, um, talks about how to use heuristics and, and um, how to make confident, how to make the best decision when, when information uh, is limited, but to be confident in that process. And just, just like we were talking about earlier. And when you have that process, even if the result is not favorable, you don't, you're not, you're less apt to get stuck in the resulting hole because you know that there was some due diligence that went into that decision. And one, um, one heuristic that's talked about in this book is essentially taking the best option first. So when we, when we make decisions, we can create this like pros and cons list and we have all the cons and then we can create like probabilities of the cons happening and then what outcome would happen. And then we have this like huge spreadsheet of shit. And that's assuming that we even know all the cons and have all the information that could create those probabilities. And then one of the heuristics is um, just picking the first, the best option that is, that comes across your lap first, because you may not, it may not ever be better. <laughs> um, and it may be, but you don't know how far that's going to, you know, how far uh, into the future that's, that's going to be. And so, you know, one example could be just exercise selection, thinking of all the different exercises, making, making your plan super complex. If this, then that, if this, then that. And then when stuff starts to hit the fan, you realize that you don't have it, like, you didn't account for, for any of these fluctuations. And so one way then to swing around that is, is just making a super simple program, which is tend to be where I lean, but there can probably be an aspect of, well, you're actually not hitting some of the most important rocks. Um, and it's the, like, just get them strong or, you know, so, so you almost become too reductionist in a sense. And so that would be an example, I think, um, like a nihilistic reductionist kind of thing where uh, I gave an example of like strength training, but does that, does, does that make sense? Yeah. And that's, I, I highly recommend the book because they actually talk, he actually talks about that. Um, the Annie Dukes book is less healthcare and more of just you apply the principles to healthcare because it makes a lot of sense. But actually, Gerd, a lot of the work that he did was in healthcare. Um, and so talks about a lot of the examples are, are healthcare related, not specifically PT or, or sport, but definitely applicable. So it's almost like just kind of trying to find a balance between not cutting too much off the edges in terms of cutting corners in your thought process and making hasty decisions. And also like the paper talked about not bombarding yourself with information overload and thinking always that more data and more information and more testing is better because at the margins, our brains can't conceptualize little differences and oh, his his AC his uh, limb symmetry is only ninety three percent, and the paper and the literature says it should be ninety seven, and we we can't compute. Um, and in this day and age, with technology, like we're tempted to get more tech, more tech, more testing. I know I have, and I've I've simplified. I go I, my pendulum swings. So this has been a really good one. And I want to thank everybody for the, for the conversations. We hope you enjoyed this show and came away with some food for thought about refining your clinical process 
One more time, if you're into brain gains, join the free Calo Community Facebook group for great discussions and resources and lots of learning and networking opportunities. And if you're ready to jump with both feet into our famed Calo Plus community and take our foundations courses, then fill out the application that we have in the show notes and we'll talk. The entirety of our Foundations 2 course is centered around creating a process for your exercise prescription. So if you enjoyed this show, you will love that course. Otherwise, thank you so much, Clinical Athlete Community, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. We will talk to you soon.